You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Well, this morning, we're actually going to continue talking about engagement. We're going to continue talking about advanced decision-making. We're going to continue to talk about how can we be disciplined in our lives in order to like engage in the things that we actually want to engage in, the things that really matter to us, things like our faith, things like our own personal discipleship, things like the mission that God has given us, not just as individuals, but even as a church community. So how do we as a community grow? What can we engage in to help us grow as a community? The thing we're going to talk about this morning is about growing in our engagement to our discipleship and mission through generosity. Through generosity, which has to do with how we invest our money, how we invest our finances. There's a lot of ways to talk about money and how it relates to the Christian life. There are a lot of ways to talk about this because the Bible actually spends a ton of time talking about money. Have you noticed this? I read somewhere that the Bible has about 500 verses on prayer. It's got about 500 verses on faith, and that the Bible has more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Isn't that amazing? We could spend a ton of time exploring all the ways that the Bible talks about money, but this morning I, I just want to look at two, two ways that the Bible talks about money, finances, possessions. When the Bible talks about money, it often employs a, a stewardship logic and a discipleship logic. I just want to look at those two things with you, a stewardship logic and a discipleship logic. First, let's look at the biblical logic of stewardship. The Bible insists upon something that may be shocking to some of us. The Bible insists that everything in existence belongs to God. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Everything belongs to God. That means that you and I are not actually owners of what we typically think of as our possessions. Right? Like, this is my laptop. And the Bible says, well, actually, no, you're not the owner. You're the steward. We're not owners of these things. We're stewards of God's possessions. A big part of the Christian life includes looking after and caring for that which does not belong to us, but to God. So even when we give away something out of the goodness of our hearts, 1 Chronicles 29.14 says this, it says, who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to make this free will offering for all things come from you and of your own have we given you? Who am I to even be able to call this that I'm giving a free will offering? I just, I, I, all I did was just give you what was already yours. It's like if I walk up to Mario, and I go, you know what, Mario? I feel like I just want to give you a free will offering. I want to like bless your heart today. Here's a hat. Like, uh, the hat was already mine, bro. This is what we're doing. Even out of like the goodness of our hearts, I just feel like I want to give this up. It's like giving Mario his hat back. If you think that sounds extreme, 
Wait, it gets worse. The biblical logic of stewardship extends even beyond our possessions. Psalm 24, verse 1 doesn't actually end after it says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. It goes on saying, the world and those who live in it. Those who live in it, those who live in it, not, not only does everything belong to God, but so does everyone. Everyone. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 say this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Not only do we not own stuff, we don't even own ourselves. God does. God owns us. How so, you might think? Well, by virtue of the fact that he created us in the first place, and then that he redeemed us, he bought us, with a price when we were still in slavery to sin and death. We are then his. Don't you know you were bought with a price? You are not your own. Not only do we not own stuff, we don't even own ourselves. 1 Corinthians continues, because of this, therefore, because you don't own yourself, glorify God in your body. Since we're not our own, we should glorify God with what rightfully belongs to Him. And the same is true of our possessions, of which we are but stewards. Since they don't belong to us, we ought to glorify God with them as well. This is, this is the operating mindset. When God says through the prophet Malachi, will anyone rob God? And yet, you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Because everything belongs to God, it is incumbent upon his people to glorify him with that of which they are stewards. And that includes generously giving. It includes generosity. That's the biblical logic of stewardship. But the Bible also uses a logic of discipleship. In Matthew chapter 6, which Father Perry read for us this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, like if you have some expensive cloth or you've got some precious metals somewhere. Don't store those things up. A moth can just eat right through that cloth and, and rust can wreck your metals. Where thieves break in and steal... But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, catch this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus is so insightful here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Have you ever thought about this? It's as if Jesus said something like this. Hey, everybody, whip out your checkbooks, your credit card statements, and I will show you what your heart is truly captivated by. 
You can tell me all kinds of things that you say, what my heart is really captivated by is this thing. Show me your checkbook. Show me your credit card statement, and I will then show you what your heart is actually captivated by. Your, your hearts, your actual loves and commitments, as opposed to your aspirational loves and commitments, are exposed by what we treasure. They're exposed by what we invest in. They're exposed. The light is turned on by what we spend on. What that means is that if our hearts are truly captivated by Jesus, by the kingdom of God, then our spending will reflect that. If our hearts are really captivated by the kingdom of God, if our hearts are captivated by the relationship that we get to have with the Lord, if they're captivated, captivated by just this, this gratitude because of what Jesus has done for us, then our spending will reflect that. If we're disciples of Jesus, the way we invest our money will demonstrate the fact. And Jesus makes it very clear that we, we can't even have divided loyalties. Some of us might think, well, can't we like diversify our hearts? Jesus says, no, you can't even do that. Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. And something we need to understand about Jesus here is that Jesus is not just being petty. You can't serve me and other things. He's not as if he as if he just doesn't like the idea of our loyalty being shared with some to him being shared with something else. That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing here is just giving us like some wisdom concerning the way the world actually works. He's telling us it's not actually possible to be devoted both to God and to money. It's an impossibility. Because true devotion to money True devotion to money comes from a belief that more stuff will make me safe. That my security in the world is dependent upon a large enough net worth. That's the way I'm going to provide for my future. That's the way I'm going to take care of life. That's the way I'm going to make sure that I'm okay, is I'm going to have enough money and I'm going to have enough stuff. And the problem with that is that when we depend on stuff to make us safe, The moment you go, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to depend on my stuff to make me secure. That is the very moment when we begin to feel unsafe because stuff can always be lost. Stuff can always be stolen. Not only that, but when we depend on stuff to make us safe, that's also the moment that our hearts give birth to greed. If stuff is going to make me safe, if that's what's going to make me secure in the world, well, then I need more. Because now my safety is in having more and more, and there can never be enough. Storing up treasure on earth doesn't actually provide security like we think it does. It actually gives birth to fear. That is like a completely countercultural message. Do you, do you, are you feeling that? That's like different than everything you see in every 401k plan, in every like bank ad. If you just store up more for yourself, if you just save more, if you just get more stuff, and if you get a bigger house, and if you can fill it with more stuff, if your garage can have more stuff in it, you can have another storage unit, you'll be okay. Have you noticed that? Every ad you see, you'll be okay. You'll get that girl. 
You'll look like that girl. You'll get that car. It'll make you feel better. But that is actually not what happens. You don't get more secure. That's the moment when you say, yeah, I'm going to buy into that. That actually gives birth in our hearts to fear. I need more. And that fear does some pretty twisted things to us. That fear from trying to become secure with my stuff, that's the thing that actually creates violence in the world. Listen to one scholar's piercing observation about pursuing money in order to provide for our security. He says, our desire to live without fear cannot help but create a world of fear constituted by the assumption that there is never enough. Such a world cannot help but be a world of injustice and violence because it assumes that under conditions of scarcity, our only chance for survival is to have more. Not only does depending on stuff to make us feel safe actually make us feel unsafe, and not only does depending on stuff to make us feel safe give birth to greed in our hearts, but that greed, it grows up into self-aggrandizement. It grows up into self-justification as we take for ourselves that which could have been used to serve the well-being of somebody else who doesn't have. Of course it's okay for me to treat myself while my employee struggles to pay the bills. I'm worth it. I worked hard. I earned it. Of course it's okay for me to have another car while global poverty exists. I'm the one who worked for this. This is the American dream. I earned it. It's mine. Treat yourself. Right? You're worth it. How many times are you told you're worth it? Thank God for Parks and Rec, huh? Amen. We got one. This was because of Parks and Rec. Do you see why the Scripture says that the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil? Because if your heart is like devoted to money, it produces crazy things in us. And none of us are immune from that. You cannot find your security in money and also in God. It's one or the other. Finding it in money means for you constant fear because you can never get enough. It means a heart motivated by greed and self-justification and it means a world of violence because we cannot imagine enough to go around. I need more. It is directly in the middle of this context, talking about money in this passage, that Jesus makes this interesting comment about the eye being the lamp of the body. I think this is so fascinating. Look at that same passage in Matthew 6, verse 23. If your eye is unhealthy, like if you can only see your safety coming from grasping after more and more stuff and more and more money, if that's all that you can see in the world, if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will become full of darkness. Your whole body. You'll become a stingy person who needs more and more and who can never get enough. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? But, but, back to verse 22, if your eye is healthy, if your eye is healthy, 
then your whole body will be full of light. If you can see God's abundant provision for his creation, like if you could see how he clothes the lilies of the field and cares for the birds of the air outside, if you could just look around and see these things, if you can imagine that your security in this world comes from him, not from you amassing more and more stuff for yourself, then your whole body will be full of light. You'll be the kind of person who can give. You'll be the kind of person who can be generous. You'll be the kind of person people want to be around. You'll be the kind of person who's joyful in their generosity, who can give and live in the world without fear. Do you see why the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever thought about that? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Not just because he likes easily manipulated people. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves when we give him our money and don't feel bad about it, like we should. He's not like trying to trick us or like he's in desperate need of some extra cash. I love a cheerful giver because my pockets are a bit empty today. No, the whole earth is God's, right? And all that is in it. God loves cheerful givers because cheerful givers are free from fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Cheerful givers are the ones who have no fear in the world. They're the ones who are consumed with love. They're the people who understand at a heart level that God cares for them. Not just like an emotional, I like that person, but God actively cares for them. He takes care of them. They're the people who rest so securely in God's position, provision, that they can give away what they have because they're like, I already have enough. I know that God's going to take care of me. I can give you what you need now because I know that God will take care of me. They're so secure in that that they can be cheerful givers. God loves cheerful givers because they are intimates of Jesus who gave his very self. Why? For the joy set before him. That's the biblical logic of discipleship. Now, when we put our full weight in the biblical logic of stewardship and discipleship, a couple things happen. What I mean by when we put our full weight in something, it's like when you really trust in something, like here's a chair. This chair to me seems like not maybe as as secure as some. A little like I sat in one and it kind of sagged a little bit. And I I was like, I don't know. And I kind of sat down. I was like, oh, okay, I got to get a different one. I didn't want to put my full weight in that chair. This chair, this one seems okay. So if I put my full weight in it, this is what faith looks like, right? Faith looks like me actually going ahead and sitting down. Because if, I, if, if the chair doesn't work, then it, it's, it's going to hurt me. Or I could stand on this chair, put my full weight. This is faith. This, this is not faith. Hold up, guys. <laughs> like, I'm almost there, right? One foot on the ground, one foot on the chair. I'm kind of using the chair. This isn't faith. Faith is being, putting my full weight on the chair. Now, if we put our full weight in the biblical logic of stewardship, like if we really buy into that, not just kind of like one foot on, one foot off, we put our full weight in the biblical logic of discipleship, a couple things are going to happen to us. Personally, we're going to, be, we're going to cease being possessed by our possessions. That's the first thing that's going to happen. We're going to be made free. Free is like Jesus said, those birds of the air, free is the lilies of the field. It will be truly liberating to trust that 
God's actually taking care of me. I'm actually okay. I don't got to worry about stuff. The Lord is the one who's worrying about taking care of me. I can experience freedom. And that freedom isn't just emotional. It's not just personal. That freedom is also a missional freedom. It's a freedom that leads to action. It's a freedom that can lead to generosity coming bubbling up from within me. Like, I want to give. I want to live in a smaller place if that's what it takes. I want to have less cars if that's what it takes. I want to forego the extra coffee if that's what it takes. I want to make whatever the sacrifice is if I can then let that sacrifice fuel some sort of mission out of my life. If I can use that sacrifice to help somebody else come to know the freedom that I have experienced in Christ instead of just kind of hogging it to myself. When I put my full weight in the biblical logic of stewardship and discipleship, I become able to joyfully glorify God with the things and the money of which I am His steward. I can be a giver. I can engage with my finances in building for the kingdom of God instead of building for the kingdom of Rob. And really practically for you guys here in Austin, that matters. Because pursuing the mission that you have at Res in South Austin and beyond, like do you know that you exist for the sake of others? You know that's like why your diocese is even called that? Because you don't exist for yourself. You don't exist only for what you can get as if church is somehow a consumer event. I come here to receive my religious goods and services. You actually exist for people who are not here yet. And that mission of existing for people who are not here yet, it just takes money. Like it takes, like for you to do what you do as a church, it takes money, just really practically. This mission for, for Res and beyond, it costs things. There's a real correlation between the effectiveness of your mission and your willingness to give to that mission. Did you know that? We would love to over-spiritualize these things. It'd be like, no, God can do anything. God does things like through us. There is a real correlation between the effectiveness of your mission as res and your willingness to give to that mission. The Apostle Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul said as much when he asked the church of Corinth to give to the Christians in Jerusalem. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, the one who sows sparingly, what happens? Reap sparingly. There is a real connection between the effectiveness of your mission and your willingness to give to that mission. The one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each of you then must give as you have made up in your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough, of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. So how can you go about sowing bountifully and sharing abundantly in every good work? Well, as we've been saying about engagement, it takes discipline. And discipline looks like advanced decision-making. It's going to be really hard to give if I don't have a plan to give. It's going to be really tough. And personally, I found some guidelines that I stole from a pastor called Andy Stanley. I found these guidelines super helpful. 
They're the guidelines of priority, percentage, and progressive giving. And I just want to share it with you because I found it so helpful in my own life. Priority giving. Christians give to God first. Christians give to God first. We save next. We live on the rest. We make up our minds, as Paul said, how much we want to give, and we make them up in light of the biblical logic of stewardship and discipleship, and then we cheerfully give before we give to anything else. We make an advanced decision to make giving a priority. People often ask, okay, but do we give before taxes or after taxes? What, is, what does the priority mean? Before taxes are at, well, we're making giving to God our number one priority. So do we give before or after we give to the government? I can tell you for my family, Julie and I make a point to give to God before we give to the government because we want our giving to God to be the priority. That's priority giving. Next, percentage giving. The Bible has a lot to say about the tithe, which means the tenth. The 10th. We read about it in Malachi earlier. Jesus even talked about it when he criticized the religious leaders of his time. In Matthew, Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Jesus was always so nice, wasn't he? He's always so cuddly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you tithe. For you tithe. Mint, dill, cumin. And you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced, justice and mercy and faith, without neglecting the others, the tithe. 10% seems like a pretty good amount to give. But even if we don't give exactly 10%, maybe we're not in a place where we can give 10% right now. Maybe tithing's new for us, or maybe we've, gotten, we've made some poor financial decisions. We've gotten into a financial spot that's like kind of tough. We can't do 10%. Well, what's cool about any percentage is that it helps us be good stewards of God's money. It starts building in a way that we can have it in our minds and our hearts that what we're trying to do is to be a good steward of God's money. Sometimes we may feel like we're not giving a very significant amount. We might be like, oh gosh, this is just such a small amount. But a percentage reminds us that even a small amount is significant when we consider the amount of sacrifice and the amount of devotion that brought about that gift. Now, we made a commitment to give a percentage and we're sticking to that. Even though it seems small, it's like a significant portion for us. Other times we may feel like, well, I'm giving a pretty good amount. I'm like giving a, a, a pretty good, I feel like I'm giving a pretty large amount. And then we look at a percentage and that percentage reveals to us, man, I'm actually not giving very sacrificially. I didn't know. I thought I was, I didn't know. And so we make an advanced decision about giving a, uh, making our giving a priority, but also making it a percentage. Finally comes progressive giving. As we continue to grow, in like a genuine freedom that we experience in the logic of stewardship and the logic of discipleship, we continue to grow in our generosity. The generosity, remember, springs from that freedom that we have. So as our financial situation changes throughout life, we may like to up our percentage from time to time, keep our giving in proportion to our income and our assets. For example, for somebody who just started their career, they're making $40,000 a year or something. 10% is like $4,000, which for that person, it's like a lot of money. It's a lot of money to live on. Just $4,000 would be helpful, right? But they're, they're making a sacrifice. But later on in life, the house is paid off. That same person's making a quarter of a million dollars a year. 
they can likely give more than 10%, right? Giving 10% actually for that person is maybe like not as much sacrifice as it used to be. Not as much faith involved in that giving. I talked with a man recently who told me so happily, he's like, my wife and I this year, we're up to giving 26%. Like we've been working at it for years. We, got, we finally got to 26%. Heard a story of another guy who decided he wanted to, to live on an inverse tithe. I want to I give 90% away and I want to live on 10%. And he's doing it. And it's making him so happy. It's like the most joyful thing to give. So we make an advanced decision to commit to priority giving, percentage giving, and to progressive giving. There is a fourth P also. Maybe you've already kind of like, well, what about, there is a fourth P. That's prompted giving. But this is kind of the extra one. Prompted giving is after we have these three. Then there's prompted giving. For example, you may know somebody in need. You want to help them out. Woman at our church, she, she found out there was a couple struggling, and so she anonymously, through the, through the church, gave this couple $800. And for this person, this was like a huge sacrifice. But she had this $800. She's like, I see that these people need this, and I want to give it even though I'm like in desperate need of this. I could use it for rent like next month. She's like, but this just makes me so happy to be able to give and take care of this family. She's overjoyed to help them. You may want to contribute to like digging a well in Haiti or in some other country to provide water for clean folks who don't have clean water. You may want to support a child through compassion or world vision or something like that. There's all kinds of opportunities, right? There's all kinds of things where God might like prick our hearts, whisper in our ears to go bless somebody else. But here's the thing about prompted giving. It usually requires quite a bit of margin, at least some margin. And that means making another advanced decision to get out of debt. Makes an it requires making an advanced decision to then not spend all of your money every month. To go, you know what, I could afford that cable package. I could afford that bundle. Instead of being like, you know, actually I don't need that and I can plan, make an advanced decision to have a little margin so that I'm ready when God whispers to me, hey, wouldn't it be fun to bless that person over there? You see what's going on over there? Wouldn't you love to do something about that? You know what? I planned to not get that bundle and now I can. My buddy, he, he, loves, he loves researching products. He like is Consumer Reports. And my buddy researched cell phones. He found out that if... if Rob, if you don't have an iPhone, if you have this other kind of phone, there's this company, Republic Wireless, you and your wife, both of you, for unlimited talk and text each month, you can pay $22.50. He's like, I went and I changed to this plan so that I could just pay $22.50 so that I can have more money to give away each month. Isn't that awesome? What if we just like actually said, well, I'm going to forego some things in order to be able to be prepared for things like prompted giving. Engaging. With our generosity matters. Giving matters. And I know it has to do with our money, and sometimes we feel like, oh, it's so hard to talk about money. We got bills to pay, and we're, and we're also financially engaged in lots of good things. It's not even like I'm spending my money on bad things. These are good things I'm spending my money on. The last thing we need is like another line item on our budget. Here's another thing we got to do. And so what I want to ask again, just like last night, is not... Is, is not how, how can I find more? How can I find more money to give to the church? Although that would be great, right? That'd be nice. 
But instead, what I want to ask you is this. What can I rearrange in my budget? What can I rearrange in my spending habits to ensure making my giving to God through my local church a priority? What can I rearrange? What will I say no to in order to say yes to something else? Like that athlete we've been talking about who says no to the beer and pizza. Not because beer and pizza are bad, but in order to say yes to the gold medal later on. Maybe you say no to the coffee at Pete's on the way to work. Maybe you say no to eating out so often. Maybe you say no to spending money you don't really have on that vacation you can't really afford. Maybe you say no to creating more debt. There was a couple in our church who took priority percentage and progressive giving really seriously. It changed their lives. They thought that they were tithing. They told me, we thought actually that we were like really generous in our giving, and then we finally actually just looked at our budget. We realized we're not even giving 10%. We're not even tithing, but we thought we were giving so much money. And they said, wow, we're not, we're not actually tithing. So they started tithing. They said, okay, well, we got to make this a priority. Let's do it. And then they said, oh, man, but we're in debt. We live in this really expensive place. Housing in Santa Cruz is kind of expensive. They're paying like $3,500 a month for their rent, and it was just kind of tough. And they're like, ah, what do we do? So they let their house go. They bought a fifth-wheel trailer, and they moved in with their four children into a 450-square-foot space so that they could pay off their debt, sort out their finances, and they began to experience a freedom that they had not yet known. Now they get to live in that freedom, which I think is pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing. Now, I don't know what the specifics are for your life, and just like last night, I don't, I don't even want to try to prescribe that for you. But what I do know is that engagement takes discipline. That's what it takes. And discipline looks like that advanced decision-making, where you plan on saying no to some things in order to say yes to something else later. And so just like last night, I just want to remind us of that. I just want to encourage us. Maybe this is what you could do today. Maybe find some time today in free time or whatever. Go look at your budget, that theological document that exposes what your heart is really invested in. Look at that and ask God, hey God, how would you like me to spend your money? What, would you, what, what do you value? How would you like me to invest in generosity and then make some Olympic athlete-like decisions that enable us to engage with our finances for the sake of discipleship? You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.